I'll never forget that morning that I got up on the last day of five days that I spent on Robin Island and decided to go on a walk. And as I walked around the island, I heard the penguins in the wild making their funny squawking, grunting noises. And as I came back to where we were staying, I walked by the maximum security prison, former maximum security prison, where Nelson Mandela had been imprisoned. And tentatively, I asked the guards that were getting the site ready for the tourists that day if we could go in. And so my friend and I walked in, counted four cells down on the long corridor and spent time by ourselves at Nelson Mandela's cell, watching the early morning light stream in, imagining what it might've been like for him to wake up there every morning for 28 years. Desmond Tutu says that it, it took all of those 28 years to turn him from an angry young man into a statesman who had the capacity to lead his country into a space of reconciliation and forgiveness and healing. Nelson Mandela himself said, as I walked out the door toward the gate that would lead to my freedom, I knew if I didn't leave my bitterness and hatred behind, I'd still be in prison. I knew if I didn't leave my bitterness and hatred behind, I'd still be in prison. Nelson Mandela was a man who knew what it was to pray this phrase of the Lord's Prayer that we're speaking about today, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Now, when I lead this prayer corporately, I always leave a little bit of room around this prayer because you never know who's going to say debts and who's going to say trespasses and who will say sins. And I always want, especially in a Presbyterian setting, for those who are going to take a little extra time to say trespasses to feel comfortable. So kind of let the murmur roll a little bit. But indeed, there's, um, there's precedent for both uses in our uh, Bible. In Matthew, the uh, word for sins or debts that is used truly does mean debts. And indeed, that is more of a Jewish or Aramaic understanding of sin. And in Luke, the word for sin that is used is closer to the word of trespassing, transgressing. And that is more of a Greek understanding of sin. But today we're Presbyterian and we're in Matthew, so we're stuck with that word debts. And I know there's a lot of people I've heard that just don't like that word. It makes them feel uncomfortable. It, it makes me feel a little uncomfortable. Who wants to be in debt? Indeed, the early church father Origen said that a human being is always a debtor. A human being is always a debtor. And that's so counter to how we want to think of ourselves. When I read the, the Book of Common Prayers, Prayer of Confession, I'm always struck by the way it says we confess that we have sinned against God in thought and word and deed, by what we have done and by what we have left undone. 
So there's a sense in, in these words that, that it's no matter what we do, whether we do or we don't, we're still in debt. Nicholas Ayo says, human life entails being in debt. And regardless of innocence or guilt, we are one and all much obliged. We are one and all much obliged. So, so we love to think of the idea of us all being interconnected, interwoven together as a global community. But I think on the other side of that interconnectedness is indebtedness. We are all are one and all much obliged. Romans 13, 8 says, Owe no one anything but to love. Owe no one anything but to love. But we all fail to love. The Book of Common Prayer goes on with its prayer of confession. We have not loved you, O God, with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. And so if the interconnective tissue between us, um, the thing that keeps that healthy and moving and growing and whole is love, then in some ways we are always in debt to each other. Io calls us as human beings tangled lovers. We are stranded and snarled and bound together and this is where the grace of God comes to help us untangle and find our way into love. Indebtedness is just the way it is. And, and wow, while that is endlessly frustrating, I think if we can accept that without guilt and without shame, it can also be incredibly beautiful. When it's accepted as part of the flow of our connectedness, we are connected and we are indebted to one another. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And here is where God enters. God is not affected by our indebtedness. God is not surprised by our condition. God forgives and forgives and forgives. We need daily forgiveness as much as we need daily bread. God knows we are dust, says the psalmist, and has mercy on us. Now, in Dallas Willard's book, The Divine Conspiracy, he uses a really interesting word here for God's, um, God's feeling towards us, God's posture towards us. And he uses another really terrible word, pity. Oh, pity. Now that's not what I want really anyone to think of me. I don't think. I mean, most of us say, well, I don't really want any pity. We kind of recoil from that word, but, but maybe it helps us get the extent to which God loves and cares for us, the extent to which God extends God's self to us. Pity recognizes that sometimes life is overwhelmingly hard, overwhelmingly difficult, near impossible for us. There are regrets that we may never be able to undo. 
There are burdens that we carry that may be too much for us, at least for a little while. We all can be, justifiably, I think, the object of someone else's pity. I love that quote that um, is attributed to many places, but this, be kind, be gentle, for everyone you see is fighting a great battle. Pity may not be the worst word to use for, for how God sees us, God's position towards us. You may prefer the word mercy, but I also invite you to let that word pity settle in with you a little bit and to see if it gets at your pride. Because our pride is really the thing that is at odds with that word pity in some ways. Dallas Willard says, if my pride is untouched when I pray for forgiveness, I have not prayed for forgiveness. I don't even understand it. So to allow ourselves to, to receive the forgiveness of God is, is to let go of some of our pride, to let go of our sense that, that we don't owe anyone anything, to let go of our individualism, to accept that the flow of God to us is forgiveness and compassion. And in this prayer, Jesus is inviting us to turn for it and ask for it, to acknowledge our indebtedness, which means acknowledging as well and living into our interconnectedness. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. There's that tiny word as in there. I love Darlene Batchelder's reflection on this this week in our Mindful Monday, where she said she doesn't think, and I agree with her, that that word as means that our forgiveness of others is, um, is the way we earn God's forgiveness of us. No, instead, it seems, and in, indeed as well in the Greek translation, that, that it's just as, that in some ways, we forgive others as a reflection of God, as a way of moving into the way God sees us, that, that great mercy that God gives to us. So as we acknowledge our indebtedness, our interconnectedness, by consciously living in the forgiving love of God, we then let that flow back out through us into the world, into those, towards those who may be in debt to us. And over time, as we pray this prayer, meant to be a daily prayer, meant to be the way that we pray, Jesus says, this living in this flow becomes more and more a way of our being. And then forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Isn't it interesting that while we close our eyes and we pray the Lord's Prayer as, an individ as individuals in a church service, that the, that, that the prayer is mostly in the plural. This prayer is not just for me as an individual. There is a corporate nature to it. There is actually, we're, we're assuming more of an individual prayer than is actually even in here. When I went to Robben Island, the group of people that I was gathering with, their activists and pastors from around the world, we were considering this question. 
What does forgiveness have to do with justice? It's such a curious question to me because, and I still struggle with it because forgiveness just seems so personal, so individual. How can forgiveness also be corporate? But I'd like to invite us to consider that indebtedness is not just about our individual debts to each other, but it can also be about systemic debt because it has to do with interconnectedness. Our societal systems are also flawed and our societal systems also have debts that we must acknowledge. As I've re-engaged my reading on anti-racism in the last few months after the murder of George Floyd, and again this week as we remember the death of Jacob Blake in Kenosha, I've been struck by how much indebtedness our country holds towards African Americans. Isabel Wilkerson in her book, The Warmth of Other Sons, writes about the great migration of African Americans where six million people between 1916 and 1970 fled the American South to go north and to go west. And they, when they arrived in the North and the West, even here on the peninsula, they had for sure more freedoms, but they were still prevented from buying real estate in many of the places that our parents settled. Places like Martinez, where I grew up in the East Bay, and places like Portola Valley. So after hundreds of years of oppression and slavery, the indebtedness grew because building generational wealth was still not an option for most. And indeed, popular policies that, that we think of building America, like the New Deal and the GI Bill, almost exclusively benefited white people in our country. As the NAACP said in 1935 about the New Deal, it's a sieve with holes just big enough for the majority of Negroes to fall through. We are indebted to people of color in our nation. And yes, these are nearly impossible and complex problems, but when we pray, forgive us our debts, we're invited to acknowledge our corporate indebtedness, along with our corporate interconnectedness. We're invited to enter into the conversation that proceeds from this prayer with humility and with a yearning for justice. Ta-Nehisi Coates, in his seminal article in The Atlantic in 2014, entitled The Case for Reparations, suggested that, quote, we reject the intoxication of hubris and see America as it is, the work of fallible humans. What I'm talking about is a national reckoning that would lead to a spiritual renewal. Whatever your thoughts are on the idea of reparations, Coates is right in asking us for a national reckoning that would lead to a spiritual renewal. A national reckoning that can acknowledge our indebtedness that leads us to interconnectedness. You see, I don't think we can get to interconnectedness. I don't know that we can get to that beloved community that Dr. King spoke about 
without some discomfort, without confronting our pride and our individualism and our indebtedness. This is the journey we're all invited to take to find that place we long for. In his letters, Nelson Mandela made a note about Robben Island on a piece of paper that was found later. He said, it must be a source of inspiration, not money. As he looked at that place, that, that island of imprisonment that had been a monument to injustice, he wanted to see it become a place that spoke of indebtedness even as it spoke of interconnectedness. And so in 1996, when President Mandela returned to the island, he brought with him other prisoners. And they went into the quarry, the limestone quarry, where many of them had worked day after day, carrying piles of rocks from one side to the other, and then back to the other side. The limestone quarry where they petitioned for darker glasses because many of them were blinded by the brightness off the limestone and weren't given them. The limestone quarry where the educated men educate, helped educate the uneducated men so they could receive degrees. The limestone quarry where they were left to work all day in the sun with no shade, a place that marked the indebtedness that South Africa's government had towards people of color in their country. Nelson Mandela went there and he took a stone and he placed it in the middle of the quarry and, and then prisoner, former prisoner after former prisoner came and placed a stone there as well to make a mark of their indebtedness, to make a corporate um, confession, make a corporate request that their country remember what had happened there, even as their country began to heal, began to move into interconnectedness. Forgive us our debts. It's a powerful prayer for us to pray as a community and as a nation. This prayer invites us to tell the truth, invites us to a way forward. As James Baldwin wrote, go back to where you started or as far back as you can. Examine all of it, travel your road again and tell the truth about it. Sing or shout or testify or keep it to yourself but know whence you came. Forgive us our debts invites us to an honest patriotism, as Donald Shriver puts it, clear-eyed and confessional and putting our faith in our interconnectedness. We must allow forgiveness to move us to justice. Now, this is so not American. It feels like, it feels like um, we're so wrapped up right now in our individual perspectives and our individual rights. And yet we also have this sense of, of being together in it that we must reclaim as individuals and as a society. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. It's a life-changing 
society-changing prayer. By claiming our indebtedness, not as guilt or shame, but as interconnectedness, we find freedom and healing. We find each other. We find grace. Amen. My haven in the storm, will you keep the embers warm when my fire's all but gone? Will you remember and bring me sprigs of rosemary? Be my sanctuary till I can carry on, carry This one knocked me to the ground. This one dropped me to my knees. I could have seen it coming, but it surprised me. Will you be my refuge, my haven in the storm? Will you keep the embers warm when my fire's all but you remember and bring me sprigs of rosemary be my sanctuary till i can carry on carry on carry on in a state of true believers on streets called us and them it's gonna take some time Be my sanctuary. 